The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will the sign and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand then that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For those days, there will be such tribulation as as has not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone asks you, look, here's the Christ, or look, There he is. Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. If it is your first time in Children's Church, please go uh, with them so we can get them checked in. Yeah, Caleb. 
That was a long passage. Well, this should be fun. I tell you, we'll teach you the truth even when it's hard. And if you think this week is bad, wait till we get to next week. We're going to study this passage of Mark 13 together. A couple of comments before we dive in. First of all, do you know portrait mode on your phone? Portrait mode on your phone? It's that setting which makes you feel like you're a professional photographer. Because what it does is it brings something into really clear focus and something in the background, it leaves, it kind of it kind of makes it fuzzy. It's not as clear. And it makes for a really nice picture. But it's it's sort of you're seeing clearly one thing and then through it you're seeing behind it something less clear. And that's what this text is going to be, all of Mark 13. Jesus is going to use the analogy of the destruction of the temple, which is very real. It's going to take place in AD 70. And he's going to sort of use that clear picture of a historical event. And through it, you're going to see blurry, but real, and coming, the reality of the end of times. So one image, the end of the temple, and through it, you're looking and seeing more blurry, the end of all times. Now this passage that we picked for this week, it's going to focus more on the end of the temple, which takes place in AD 70. But I just want you to keep that in mind, that one is sort of, one is true on its own and also gives you a distant picture that you're seeing in the back of what the other will be like. And we'll focus on that more next week. The other thing that I want to tell you is, is that pre- preaching a passage like this can make a preacher sick. It can, talking about judgment and end times and pregnant and nursing mothers running off into the distance. It's, you can end up feeling somehow that I have to preach this text and defend God's actions, justify God's behavior. But then I thought of something, and I feel so much better preaching it to you now. Jesus doesn't give this passage so that God could be safe from your accusations. Jesus gave this passage that you could be safe from God's judgment. And therein lies its grace. That's why we don't have to be ashamed of it. So let me pray, and we'll ask God to bless his study, our study of his word. Let's pray. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your word, and I pray that you would be at work within us this morning for both. On this dreary, rainy day, would you help us to be sober and rightly somber about things that are important in this word? Father, we need the power of your spirit for us to help to understand. So will you illumine us about these difficult things? And not just illumine us, but exhort us, encourage us, bolster us. We ask God that even though this is can be a murky text, that you would move through it powerfully. We expect that you would, because we know that you love to bless your people. You love to meet their needs. You love to give them grace. You love to lift their chins. And not just your people, for those who are not yet your people, that you would move in their hearts, that they would be paralyzed without you. God, move powerfully this morning 
and make more your own. We ask that you would bless us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. A very dear friend of mine is a farmer, and just outside the front door of his farm, he has a pond. He remembers years back, it was a snowy Chattanooga. Everything had iced over, and the moon was shining so brightly. And you know how when the moon shines so brightly on the snow, the whole, the whole ambiance of creation sort of glows. And he said he went out to see, check on the animals and to see how snowy it had gotten. And he said he stepped outside his front door and just gasped at the beauty. There's, uh, there's snow and mist and moonlight and he looks down and he sees the pond is frozen over. And not just that the pond is frozen over, the moon is shining so brightly on the pond, there's this reflection. And he said it was almost instinct. He couldn't help himself. He was just basking in all of it. And he stepped out on and walked out to the middle of the ice to just take it all in. And then he heard crack. And he said one thought ran through his mind before he sunk to the bottom. My friend's still alive to this day, by the way. Otherwise, I wouldn't know about that story. <laughs> I should have known better. I should have known better. Meaning, the, it's sad that he was in that much danger. It's even sadder that he should have known better. It's a picture of what's going on here when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. I told you he's been battling it out with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the scribes. He's been battling it out because they have misrepresented Yahweh, Israel's God. He's misrepresented him to the people. They should have known better. They of all people should have known better what God was like. And not only is it all going to come crumbling down, crack. They should have known better. And that's what Jesus is taking us through this morning in Mark 13. The unmistakability of the king's judgment. So remember, we're going to talk this week about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, a historical effect. But it's going to set the tone for us to look past it to a little murkier passage, which is going to be referencing the end of times. But why should the temple come to an end? Two things. Why should the temple come to an end? They weren't using it properly, and we no longer need it. Two things. They weren't using it properly, and we no longer need it. Let's start with them not using it properly. If you flip back to the beginning of your Bible, all the way to Genesis 12, and God has chosen Abram, who will become Abraham, to be the father of many people, father of many nations, and he's chosen him, and he gives him this high calling. And if you're going to understand what's going on in the New Testament, the destruction of the temple, you have to go all the way back to the Old Testament and figure out what were God's people supposed to be like. What were God's people supposed to be like? And the answer is this. Listen, this is God, Yahweh, talking to Abram. And he's setting the tone for everything that's about to take place in the Scriptures. And he says this, Go from your country and your kindred, in your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that 
When you see a comma and a so that, I'm going to bless your family to what purpose? Why is God going to bless Abraham? Do you know the answer? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse, listen to this, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God takes this this unlikely candidate to become the father of many nations and he makes him great and gives him a great name and gives him many descendants for what purpose? So that every family on the world, on the earth would be blessed. Abraham is blessed to be a blessing. That's the point. That's why Israel existed. Blessed to be a blessing. Here it is. Here's it from a Deuteronomy passage. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to you and your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful. It's not because they were so many. It's not because they were so powerful. It was because God chose to set his love upon them so that they could take that to the rest of the world, all the families of the earth, and say, God will bless you. God will be your God. And we know you don't deserve it. And the reason that we know you don't deserve it is because we didn't deserve it either. That's the story that's being told through Scripture. The Abrahamic blessing. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. But churches and Israel, for all of history have taken the blessings of God, being God's special chosen people, that God is their God, and they've said, isn't this great for us? Let's keep the money in the family. Let's hoard this to ourselves. God loves us. We must be special. We must be great. I mean, think about it. Remember Jonah? God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell those enemies that I'm going to get them unless they repent because I want them to repent, and then I'm going to give them grace and forgive them. And Jonah doesn't go. He gets swallowed up by a whale because he doesn't go. He gets taken back to Nineveh. He goes and preaches this message of condemnation so that they do repent and they do receive God's mercy. And then Jonah's mad at God. You remember this beautiful moment. God has rescued Nineveh from the Ninevites and they've put on sackcloshes and they've repented. And Jonah's angry with God. And God says, do you have a right to be angry? And he says, I knew that you were a gracious God. I knew you'd forgive those horrible sinners. I knew you'd do it. He's mad because God was gracious. He wanted to keep the money in the family with the good people. And if we're not careful, the church can follow Israel's suit so closely. God has blessed us. God loves us. God has chosen us. We must be special, don't you think? Well, and those people out there, you know what they do. You know what kind of lives they live. You know what kind of decisions they make. God would not be interested in them because they're not special. We're special. And the church can do the exact same thing as the Israel's leadership does that says this is for us and forget about those people out there. When the whole 
point of Israel, the whole point of the church was to go to a people who don't deserve it and say, you get to come in. Outsiders get to be brought near. And yeah, I know you don't deserve it. I know because I didn't deserve it either. I still don't. Do you see how, how different it is, how they've, how they've messed with the narrative of who God is? And that's why God has to bring it crumbling down. Because if the, if the most physically beautiful, admirable place on earth, the temple, where the stuff of Yahweh goes down, is miscommunicating the message so badly, it must be torn down. And so God does that. He has it torn down because it's a judgment on Israel that they of all people remember my friend, should have known better. They should have known better. The temple, Keller says this, the temple was an impressive building. The Jewish historian tells us that each stone was 37 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. Therefore, when Jesus says not one stone will be left standing on the other, he is predicting an extremely violent and tremendous disaster. And we know that this prophecy became true. In AD 70, the Roman army under Titus destroyed Jerusalem. He raised the temple to the ground as a lesson and a warning to all rebels. So Jesus says the temple's going to be destroyed because you should have known better. And then it actually takes place in in, uh, 70 AD. It says, you cannot hoard You cannot hoard God's blessings for yourself. There's this phenomenal scene in an old movie. It's glory. It's a Civil War movie with Matthew Broderick and Morgan Freeman and Denzel Washington. It's from a long time ago. I think I had to watch it in seventh grade. Um, But there's a scene that's stuck in my head. The whole story of this, this vignette, glory of Civil War, is that Matthew Broderick, a white colonel, has been in charge of, put in charge of all black troops who are fighting for the North. All black troops who are fighting for the North. And Matthew Broderick is their colonel. And at one point, Denzel Washington, one of the most striking characters in the entire movie, he's caught running away. And so he's brought back as somebody who abandoned his troops. And he's punished ridiculously severely. And it's so sad. And there's this scene where Morgan Freeman is explaining to Matthew Broderick, that the reason that he was running away is not to abandon his troops. He was looking for boots. His feet were so beat up and so bloodied from marching up and down that he was just looking for boots. Morgan Freeman finds out that the quartermaster refuses to give boots to black soldiers. This low man on the totem pole, quartermaster, refuses to give boots to black soldiers. And so Broderick charges into the room. And he says, I want 600 pairs of shoes and 1,200 pairs of socks and anything else you've been holding out on us, you piece of rat filth. And he says, oh, we don't have that. And he says, oh, not for the black soldiers you don't. Not for anybody, the quartermaster says. I see. I'll just look around here and see if you haven't misplaced them. And he starts tearing the quartermaster's place apart and smashes, smashes up the place. The quartermaster says to him, you can't do this. And he says, can't I? I'm a colonel, you nasty little cuss. You think you can keep 700 Union soldiers without proper shoes because you think it's funny? Now, where would that power come from? 
That's, that's the picture of why Jesus is so angry. Those boots were meant to be given to someone, a group of people, to bless them. And instead, this guy's hoarding them all to himself. And that's what Israel's doing, saying, I don't want those people out there to get the blessings of God. Those people are sinners, forgetting that God didn't choose us because we were lovely or because we were good or because we were more than others. He chose us as an example that if he could save these people, who couldn't he save? Ultimately, that's what Paul will say. Paul, the one who slayed Christians in the New Testament, he'll say in 1 Timothy, the reason God chose me the worst of sinners is so that people might understand the patience of God. In other words, they'd be like, Paul? They're going to let Paul in? That guy who slayed Christians? That guy who was terrible and persecuted Christ? They're going to let Paul in? Man, they will let anybody in. Exactly. That's the point. And that's why Jesus is saying, you have not used yourself to bless every family on the earth, and so I'm tearing it all down. And we don't want to make the same mistakes. Churches all over the world feel like we're loved and seen and special, and God loves us, and I wish those people out there would clean it up. Instead of those people out there, I wish they knew what we knew. That there is hope and a redeemed Savior for messes like us, messes like Paul. We want to not build up walls. We want to tear them down. So that's, that's the one side of it. That's the Jesus' destroying of the temple as punishment to Israel. But then there's this other side of it. Jesus destroying the temple because we just don't need it anymore. This is very powerful. Follow this. In the beginning, they become this family, and they get a tabernacle so that they can have God's presence with them wherever they go. It's so that people who come and fight them will know their God doesn't hang out in heaven. Their God stays with their people. So wherever they go, they've got God in the tabernacle. And then they give him a more permanent place, or more so, he makes a more permanent place through Solomon of Solomon's temple. This glorious, beautiful place where God lives, and the people live around God, as if to say, God lives among you. God lives among you. And then the temple is destroyed and rebuilt. And because it wasn't close enough for God to be in the, te- in the tabernacle, it wasn't close enough for God to be in the temple. John 1 says God came near in Jesus. He doesn't want any distance from you and from him. He doesn't want any more space between the two of you. And so when Jesus lives a perfect life and dies a gruesome death, essentially what he does is is he says all of the blood that was required for people to live near God Blood of goats and blood of bulls and all these sacrifices so that a messy people could be cleaned up to live near a perfect God. All of that stuff never has to happen anymore because Jesus has come and died once and for all for his people. That his blood is a better blood. His sacrifice is a better sacrifice. There's no more need of the temple. It says this in Matthew 27. And behold, this is after Jesus Jesus dies the death for you and me. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and earth shook and rocks were split. Now I know it might 
take a second to understand this, but why does it matter that the curtain is split? So remember, in the temple, there was a place that nobody could go except the high priest only one time a year. They had court for women, and they had a court for outsiders or the Gentiles, and they had a place where the priest could go and make sacrifices. And then they had this very special place called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies. And this is how special this place was. On the Day of Atonement, one time per year, He represented the chosen people before Yahweh, the most holy place. So they put a rope around this guy in case he dies from running into God in the most holy place, and they have to pull him out. And he would go in, and he would sprinkle the blood of a bull, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial goat on the mercy seat. And without him doing this, God could not live in relationship with his people. Annually, he would go in, one time a year, and God would stay in the temple, God would stay in the tabernacle, God would stay near his people, messed up as they were because the sacrifice had been made, and God could live with his people for one more year. And when Jesus does this, when Jesus dies for your sin and for my sin, the behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The authors make sure you know that it wasn't people running around and cutting it in half, that this 60-foot high curtain was torn in two. It's literally as if God took his hands and went like that and ripped it. This is a, it was four inches thick and 60 feet high. Listen to this verse. It's one of my favorites. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. The, the author of the letter of Hebrews It's almost kind of showing you the monotony of it. Listen to this. Listen how bloody it is. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Listen to this verse. And hang on to it. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Well, which is it? Jared, you tell us we're all good and we stand right before God and that we're as holy, we're as loved now as we're going to be on that one day. And yet we have to keep repenting and keep having new faith and keep trying to reapproach and reassess and rebelieve the gospel. It's both. He has made perfect forever. It's done. You stand in Christ, if you stand in Christ, as a beloved son or daughter, and it will never be taken for you, and you will never come up short in holiness. Never. You could die on the way out of here and you've got more than you need because you've got the full perfect record of Christ and God has made perfect forever those who are still being made holy. It's going to take you a long time. So which is it? It's both. Jesus is down with the tabernacle, down with the temple. Now all you need is me. There's no more distance between you and me. There's no more passive aggressiveness or resentment there's no more you have to stay out there and he's going to stay in here he's yours so they don't need a temple anymore because they don't need bulls anymore and they don't need goats anymore 
because they have the perfect sacrifice, the blood of Christ, which makes them perfect forever, those who are being made holy. Your salvation is past tense. And good news, friends, it's future tense too. It's good in the past, and it's going to get better and better in the future. I want you to see that. That Jesus allows the destruction of the temple because the temple wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, which was bless the nations and bring people near to God. Instead, it was pushing people away from Him, thinking that they could never be near God. So he tears it down because it wasn't being used properly and it's torn down because they don't need it anymore and you don't need it anymore either. All of our religious attitudes and practices and hobbies and habits, they're good. If they help you, they're good and you should throw yourself into them. But you should throw yourself into them from a place of I am already saved, I am already adopted, I am already loved, and so I'm free now to pursue God in these avenues. We tend to set up these things as if if I pursue God in these avenues, then I will be maybe free. So the reason you do your religious practices and hobbies and habits which can be wonderful, is from a place of savedness, not to get to a place of savedness. You don't need it anymore. And as if that wasn't close enough, then he sends his Holy Spirit. He says, not only am I going to walk around and be near my people, people will know what I'm like. I'm going to give them my spirit. They're going to be inside the individuals and inside the church corporate, that my presence with them will be forever with them. I've told you this before, but the study of the Bible could just be a study of the proximity of God towards us. It starts out walking in the cool of the garden and then distance and distance and then we need tabernacles and then we need temples and then Jesus himself comes and then Jesus gives us his spirit and Jesus says, and my spirit will never leave you. Oh, and by the way, I'm coming back for you. The whole thing is a study of the proximity of God towards his people, towards people who know they don't deserve it but he gives it to them anyway. And it's the people of God's job to go to the nations, to every family on earth, to say, I know you don't deserve it, but he gives it anyway. You know, want to know how I know? Because I don't deserve it. And he gives it to us anyway. That's what the people of God were supposed to be. The, the, that's what the church was supposed to be. I know it's got these verses in here which are difficult to understand. But in this 5 through 13 and in this 14 through 23, it's primarily him talking about the destruction of this place so that his disciples will know it. See that no one leads you astray. Many will be coming saying, I'm Jesus, I'm Jesus. The disciples needed to know that. That when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This is, must take place, but the end is not yet. In that section, be on your guard if you're beaten in synagogues, if you're beaten before governors or kings, the Holy Spirit will give you words to say that's what's happening in A.D. 70. And then he says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and let the reader understand, and you're like, no, no I don't understand. <laughs> Did you just say where the abomination of desolation is standing where he shouldn't be? I don't even understand most of those words. And Mark's like, well, let the reader understand, obviously. Again, what that means, 
we don't really know. Um, it's prob- apocalyptic prophetic language, we think, from Daniel. But we think because of the specificity, they would have known what it meant and that it has to do with what took place in the torching of the temple. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Sad it is for pregnant and nursing mothers. Flee, get out of here. There's no fleeing when Christ comes. This is the picture, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. This is the picture for which we'll see dimly in the background, and we'll talk about next week, the other picture of the end of times. But these verses are talking to you about the destruction of the temple. God used to bring destruction down on Babylon and Idumea and Egypt and Pharaoh, and now he brings it down on his own temple because they weren't taking it to the nations and to the families of all people. We cannot become a spiritually important institution. We can't. This takes place as the world around us dies. People should visit this place and think, I don't know who those people are, but they want to bless me. They want to encourage me. They want to sacrifice for me. Tim Keller says that if, if you're the, the measure of how your church is doing is if the world opened up and your church was swallowed into the bowels of the earth, and just gone overnight, what would the neighbors say about the church? Would they say they didn't care, they were better than us, they were superior, they looked down on us, or would they weep and say those people lived for the sake of us? That's what we want. That's what we want. I know it's hard to see Jesus talked about in such terms, but this is from 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the work of the devil. So here's what I want you to get out of him destroying the temple. That the leaders of the church need to exist for the sake of the the rest of the world. And that the people of the church need to know that all that has been required for their salvation is already happened in Christ. The story is Jesus wins. I know you're discouraged sometimes and lonely, but Jesus will win. I know you're discouraged about the amount of your sin and the types of your suffering, but Jesus will win. I know you're discouraged about the state of our world, but Jesus will win. In fact, he's already done so. And he's coming back to do it again. Let us be the kind of church that rests in the fact that we don't need a temple because we've got the Holy Spirit of Christ who died for us and there is no distance between us and Him anymore. And we are so delighted in that that we can't help ourselves but tell everybody about it. The farther they off they are, the more likely they are. I've been meeting with different unbelievers around the city who I love and I'm trying to love back to life. One of them has got a very difficult story, tons of pain in the background, lots of shame, lots of just hurt, so many obstacles, thrown himself into atheism, just cannot imagine the tales of an old book would ever direct his life. 
And at one point I was telling Aaron, it was discouraging trying to love on somebody like that because it feels like it's so unlikely. It's so unlikely with all of the pain that wasn't his fault, with all the shame that some of it was his fault, with all of the difficulty and condemnation for the church. It's so unlikely that this guy would ever become a Christian. And then I was thinking and praying and a thought rolled through my mind and it quieted my heart and I felt a thousand times better. You know what it was? It was no more likely for me to come to faith than it is for him to come to faith. It's always the Holy Spirit. It's always an act of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's no more likely that I'm here than he could be here. And if you live like that, it will change your heart and it will change this city. Let's pray. I can shake my finger at the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and yet I still think there must be something special about me that you would save me. It's no more likely that you'd save me than it is you'd save anybody else. Help us to live like that and live out of that. Help us, God, to be the kind of people that the leadership of the temple never were to rest in your son's sacrifice to go and tell the world. It's no more likely us than them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The leadership of the temple never were to rest in your son's sacrifice to go and tell the world. It's no more likely us than them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.